Hello, this is Karen Strassman. Oh, hi. It's good to see you. Welcome to Corpse Run Radio. Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. The Forsaken. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode forty-nine of Corpse Run Radio. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you will enjoy what I've put together for you. We have some classic content, some 8.2 content, some music. So, as usual, we've got pretty much everything. To start it off, here is Hero Maradex with top 10 weirdest talents from Vanilla WoW talent trees. In this video, we'll go over 10 talents from Vanilla WoW that are a little weird in the way that they're either really bad, out of place, or just did a unique thing. But mostly, a lot of these are just going to be kind of bad. And starting off, we'll go with one of those out of place talents. So number 10 will be Weapon Balance. Now I'm going to read you what this talent does, and I want you to guess which class and spec it belongs to. Increases the damage you deal with melee weapons by 2%, up to a maximum of 10%, with 5 talent points. Now, would you think this was a talent for a weapon-based class, like a warrior, rogue, or paladin? Well, you'd be wrong, because this was a deep talent in the Balance Druid Tree. Weapon Balance was a 20-point talent for Balanced Druids, a spec that today could be more accurately described as a pure caster class. In Vanilla WoW, or in the early days of Vanilla WoW anyway, Balanced Druids didn't really have a niche yet, and their talents generally increased the damage or interacted with their spellcasting, with the final talent in the tree being Hurricane, a spellcasting AoE. And then randomly there was Weapon Balance, which increased the damage they did with their melee weapons, despite the fact that they had no melee attacks with weapons, nor any other talents in the balance tree that indicated they wanted to use melee weapons. Now, druids did have melee abilities while in cat or bear form, and this talent did not affect those. Eventually though, in a later patch, weapon balance was removed from druids, and they kind of redid the talent tree a little bit to be more spellcasting focused, and even gave them moonkin form as their final talent. And at number 9, we have Curse of Exhaustion. Curse of Exhaustion in its first form was kind of a unique slow. Curse of Exhaustion was a 20 point talent in the Affliction Tree, and it gave the Warlock a curse with the effect of reduce the target speed to 90% of their normal run speed for 12 seconds. Now what's interesting about this is that it doesn't just say lower your target speed by 10%. It says reduce their speed to 90% of normal. And this little distinction actually makes it so it's a little bit more useful than the standard slow. Now there was also another talent right next to this one which would increase the slow to 30% 
which most people took with this talent, so I'm just going to refer to it as a 30% slow for the rest of this part. Anyways, with its unique wording, if you applied Curse of Exhaustion to a player on a mount, for example, it would first reduce the running speed to the standard 100%, so completely ignoring the mount movement speed increase, and then it would apply the 30% slow. Whereas other movement speed decreases would just slow on top of the mounted speed, and not slow for as much as Curse of Exhaustion. Or if used on any other run speed increase, like a sprint, for example, it would lower the run speed to 100%, and then lower that by another 30%. It would just normalize the run speed, and then slow them, which made it a pretty decent slow. And then in a later patch in vanilla, Blizzard removed this distinction, and just turned Curse of Exhaustion into a normal slow with its new effect being reduces the target movement speed by 30% for 12 seconds. So the reason this one even makes this list wasn't because it was bad, but because its effect was unique. And at number 8 we have Throwing Weapon Specialization. This was a 25 point combat rogue talent with 2 ranks that would increase the range of your thrown weapons by 6 yards. Now here's the thing about thrown weapons in vanilla WoW, they sucked. Thrown weapons did terrible damage, required you to aim the weapon, or I guess had a casting time, and had a cooldown. You could only use a throwing weapon once, or maybe twice, if you had a fast one and did a little bit of kiting, but it was so inefficient to use throwing weapons that they were really only reused to just pull a mob. And that's about it. You did not need to throw extra ones, nor did you need to waste talent points deep in the combat tree to get an extra 6 yards on it. Basically, what I'm trying to say is this talent was useless, but not only that, it was a top talent, being only second to the final talent in the combat tree, Adrenaline Rush. That's why in patch 1.12, throwing weapon specialization was removed from the combat tree, and instead it was replaced with weapon expertise, which was much better, as it gave the rogue 6 extra expertise in swords, fists, and dagger weapons. Number 7. Two-Handed Axes and Maces. This was a 10-point enhancement shaman talent that allowed the shaman to use two-handed axes and maces. Pretty simple effect, enhanced shamans also had a 20-point talent called parry, which allowed them to parry attacks. Here's the thing about these two talents. All other classes that can parry or use two-handed weapons get those abilities as baseline abilities, not something you have a talent into. And after Vanilla WoW, no classes had to use talent points to be able to use two-handed weapons or parry. But during Vanilla WoW, Enhanced Shamans had this unique distinction of needing to waste their talent points to get baseline stuff. But what made two-handed axes and maces kind of annoying, for lack of a better word, was the fact that if you swapped your talents and lost this talent point, you lost all of your skills in those weapons. So if you took this talent again later on, you'd have to skill up your two-handed axes and mace skill from zero. Vanilla WoW did not have dual talent specialization. That was not added until Wrath of the Lich King, so every time an enhanced shaman had to swap specs, they would have to spend a couple hours skilling up their skills in these two weapons, something no other class needed to do, because they were given their abilities to use weapons as baseline abilities, not talents. Number six. The Lightwell. Lightwell is infamous for being one of the worst and poorly designed abilities in WoW's history, despite the fact that it seems like a pretty useful ability at first glance. 
Lightwell was a last point talent in the Holy Tree for priests, and had the effect of creates a Holy Lightwell near the priests, and party and raid members can click on the Lightwell to restore health over 10 seconds. Being attacked cancels this effect. At first glance, it seems pretty useful. The priest will place down a light well, and party members can click on it to heal themselves. But here's the thing. For the longest time, taking damage would cancel the heal you got from the light well. I think this was in place so that a healer couldn't just drop a light well next to a tank, and they could just keep clicking on it to heal themselves while tanking. But this also made it kind of awkward to use for other people, as in a raid fight, you'd constantly be taking damage, which could easily cancel this effect. And there's also the thing that players have to click on it themselves if they want to get a heal. And it was easy for players to accidentally click it multiple times and use up too many of the charges at once. And there's also the thing that no one ever wanted to click on the light well. In fact, it was kind of infamous for this, and probably this reason alone. Blizzard even put it on some of their loading screen tips for people to just click on the light well. Blizzard tried so hard to get people to click on the light well, that they eventually gave up and converted into something that would spit out heals to people, before finally removing the ability with Legion. And at number 5, we've got Lacerate, the last talent in the Survival Hunter tree. Lacerate is a pretty standard dot. It was a melee range bleed that did about 100 damage over 21 seconds, and did not scale. Serpent Sting at rank 4, which hunters obtained at level 40, did 140 damage over 15 seconds, which is just a straight up better dot. And Serpent Sting is baseline and a ranged ability. The max rank of Serpent Sting obviously did much more damage. Lacerate was just really bad for some reason. But also in the survival tree, there was an ability called Melee Specialization, which increased the damage a hunter did with melee weapons by 5%, and was at the 25 point talent mark the second to last row before Lacerate in the survival tree. Hunters in Vanilla WoW had terrible melee damage, but Blizzard had a couple of abilities in the survival tree sorted towards melee. In patch 1.7, Lacerate was removed from the survival tree and replaced with Wavering String. And then after that, they didn't completely remove melee talents from the survival tree until Mists of Pandaria. Number four, Blood Craze. Blood Craze is a 10-point Fury Warrior talent with the effect of regenerate 3% of your total health over 6 seconds after being the victim of a critical strike. Now at first glance, this may seem like a pretty niche heal, until you remember a few things about combat in Vanilla WoW. For one, its heal is really low, 3% of your total health over 6 seconds, as if getting 3% of your health instantly would be too much or something. But putting it as a 6 second hot, well it's kind of like a worse version of Brush It Off. Brush It Off is the new Colteran Human Racial, which heals you for 2% of the damage you take over 4 seconds. Except Brush It Off works on any ability, and not just crits. Which brings me to another part of this ability. It only activates if you're subject to a critical strike. One of the tank's jobs is getting enough defense rating so that they won't be crit by bosses who have an inherent 6% chance to crit. So Blood Craze isn't a tanking talent. Fury Warriors and Raids should not be getting hit by anything. So it's not a PvE raid or dungeon talent. Out in the open world though, spells can't crit you, but physical, ranged, and melee attacks can. And if they do, they do so much damage that this tiny little heal isn't gonna help very much. 
especially having to spend three points into it. But what's funny about this talent is that this is the buffed version of Blood Craze. The original version of Blood Craze had this effect. Allows 15% of your health regeneration to work during combat for 20 seconds after being the victim of a critical strike. And health regeneration as a stat in Vanilla WoW is just referring to your out of combat health regeneration. You know, the thing that recovered incredibly slowly in Vanilla WoW? Health regeneration was so bad that the troll racial regeneration, which allowed 10% of your health regeneration to continue during combat at all times, was considered one of the worst racials in the game. And the original talent allowed you to sometimes have a slightly better version than the troll racial, only after being hit by a crit, of course. That is to say, Blood Craze was a very interesting talent, and for some reason was very rarely picked, despite warriors having almost no self-healing in vanilla. Number 3. Divine Strength Let's play another little guessing game. I'm going to read off what this talent does, and then I want you to guess which paladin tree it's a deep talent in. Divine Strength increases your strength by 10% at 5 ranks. If you guessed it was a 25 point holy talent, and in the second to last row, you'd be correct. But did you also know holy paladins didn't do melee damage? Or they weren't supposed to anyway, in raids or PvP where it mattered. This is just another one of those interesting talents that would actually be really good for a lot of classes, but for some reason is given to a spec that doesn't need it, and that's why it was later removed from the Holy Tree. I should also mention that the last talent at the time was Holy Shock, which is a spell Holy Paladins have today, except in its first version, it only did damage at a 20 yard range and a 30 second cooldown. Holy Shock was supposed to be the Paladin version of the Shaman Shocks, except all three of the Shaman Shocks were really good, and had 6 second cooldowns. And for some reason, they gave Paladins one shock with a much longer cooldown at 30 seconds, but with the same short 20 yard range, and not at all good. Later on in vanilla though, they did finally give it the option to heal instead of doing damage, which was the hallmark of the Holy Shock ability, where you could choose to do either or, but it still wasn't good. Blizzard had a really hard time getting Paladins to use Holy Shock, basically until they added Holy Power to the game in Cataclysm. Number 2. Primal Instincts This was the final talent in the Feral Druid Tree, which had the effect of lowering the mana cost of your shapeshifting by 25%. Now, shapeshifting was very mana intensive, and Blizzard did intend for druids to be able to change forms regularly during combat, but shapeshifting was too mana expensive, and a 25% reduction was not enough to encourage shapeshifting combat. And in fact, a 25% mana reduction to shapeshifting was a terrible final talent, and that's why they removed it and replaced it with something better, and then moved this talent to the balance tree in the second row of talents and renamed it to Natural Shapeshifter, which at 3 ranks reduced the mana cost of shapeshifting by 30%, and at an easy point to get in the talent tree, with only requiring 3 ranks, wasn't half bad here. And that's the thing, this version of it was just straight up better than Primal Instincts, and even then, it's a pretty meh talent. Which should go to show how terrible Primal Instincts was. It was a worst version of Natural Shapeshifter, and one of the final talents the Feral Druid could take, a role usually taken up by one of their best abilities or talents. 
And finally, number one, Master Conjurer. This was a 15-point demonology talent that, at max rank, reduced the mana cost and casting time of your stone creations by 40%. Here's the thing about Warlock Stones. They could only create four of them. Two of them were basically useless, and the two useful ones, the Health Stone and Soul Stone, were never casted in combat. All four of them were things you casted outside of combat as kind of a preparation spell, so their cast times and mana costs didn't matter, which in lies this talent's uselessness. At least Primal Instincts was somewhat useful, as shapeshifting was very mana expensive, and something you might have to do in combat sometimes. Although rarely did you have to cast any of your stone abilities in combat. In a later patch of Vanilla WoW, Blizzard just straight up removed this talent, as no one really took it and it was kind of useless. And I think that's why I put it at number one. Out of all the talents, this one is arguably the least useful one, which is saying something considering a lot of the talents I covered in this video. Alright, and that's the end of the video. Do you know of any other weird or useless talents that existed in WoW's lifetime that should have made this video? Or have any ideas for videos just like this one? If so, I'd love to hear about them down in the comments. to play alliance to the death loving my space goat but i confess obligatory i rolled a hoardy i guess i thought that i'd regret the choice to my surprise it did not disappoint thought it meant nothing but it changed everything i went to town to see what's up already calling it bloodlust i hear a noise i hear a sound like thunder and it shakes the ground I went to town to see what's up In trade chat and thunder bluff I see it all, I see it now This is the side that is mightier and higher Passion like a fire Cause we are the champions And we're shouting cry rolling with the horde has changed my life i left my blue and gold went red when i re-rolled i went to town to see what's up already calling it bloodlust i hear a noise i hear a sound like thunder and it shakes the ground i went to town to see what's up in trade chat and thunder bluff i see it all i see it now this is the side that is mightier and higher Passion like a fire Cause we are the champions And we're shouting
I'm Hazel, and today we're looking at 15 cool things coming to WoW in patch 8.2. As for when exactly that's going to be, there's no official release date yet, it'll probably be one of those Tuesdays in June. For this video, I've ordered these as a very biased countdown with stuff that I'm personally excited for at the end. Number 15, Heroic Warfronts. And by that, I mean just Stromgard. There's no heroic Darkshore Warfront in this patch. The premise here is that you'll need a pre-made group for it. The group size is flexible between 10 and 20 players, and it'll be more difficult than a regular Warfront, but with better rewards. I am reserving judgment only because I'm having a really tough time imagining anybody I know being jazzed to run a Warfront. I'm sure the gear will be good, but there's also good gear from raids and Mythic Plus and other things that have a reputation for being fun. It does solve my main problem with regular Warfronts, which is that the lack of risk or challenge made them mind-numbingly boring. We'll see. Number 14, Holiday Updates. They have specifically singled out Brewfest whenever talking about this, but there is an and more there, so maybe they're all getting a facelift. Every time the topic of holidays comes up in conversations, I feel like someone always says that they've been the same for too long, so this is the fix for that. Until the actual holidays roll around, we won't know exactly what the updates are. I've personally been fine with the one or two new cosmetic items each year, but not much else that we've been getting recently. It gives me new stuff to get while still letting me feel caught up. Once again, I'm reserving judgment until I see how much this is going to ask from me and what I can expect to get out of it. Lucky number 13 is Titan Essences. This is the new reason for leveling your neck. In 8.2, you'll be able to spec the traits on any new Azerite gear you get right away without worrying about your neck level, so this is what you're working towards instead. The first and best essence slot is free. You unlock that right away in 8.2 with a short quest line. After that, you'll need to level your neck to 55 for a minor slot, and then the second minor slot at 65. I wouldn't stress out too much about it. The minor traits are nice, but they're not life-changing unless you're going for like a world first. There are calculators online where you can fuss around with the specifics if that sounds like fun to you. I know Wowhead has one. For me, I'm just gonna look up what the best ones are, go get those, use them, and that'll be the end of that. It's a very minimal input system, which is really all I can ask for. I'm more or less just waiting for Azerite to be over at this point, and this is a pretty painless way to do that. Number 12 is the Outdoor Najatar Zone. It's risen from the sea, or something like that, and there's gonna be quests to do, fish people to grind rep with, all that good stuff. We're getting world PvP objectives to control out there, so if you missed the tower-flipping fun of BC zones, we're getting a fresh dose of that. Winning battles or just being in the zone while better players win battles for you will get you Najatar battle commendations. You can spend those on a mount and some toys and stuff. Najatar also brings back combat followers. You'll be able to level up a few different companions while questing and unlock abilities for them as you go. It's very pretty out here, and I'm looking forward to questing and farming up the new herb to sell. It's in everything, so it should be pretty good. Number 11, and this is something Najatar has a lot of, are new pets to collect. This would be higher on the list if I was completely caught up on existing pets, but I'm not. While 80 new pets is exciting, I'm also a little bit overwhelmed. There's crabs, there's slugs, there's capybara, we got robo hands and baby naga and toothy fish, and my personal favorite, the stabby crabs. If you're within sneezing distance of a new pet collection meta achievement, it's about to get a lot easier. Number 10, new fishing stuff to do. I, and I know I'm not the only one here, unironically love fishing in WoW. It's profitable and relaxing for when you want to make gold while using the smallest possible portion of your brain. 8.2 is adding new fishing goals you can find out in Mechagon. Fish up a selection of uncommon fish for Secret Fish of Mechagon, and you'll earn the Secret Fish Goggles toy. Wear those, and you can fish for even more secret fish all around the world to earn the Secret Fish and Where to Find Them achievement for a hyper-compressed ocean toy. There's already a guide rolling in a Wowhead comment tracking down where you'll need to fish for all of this, and it's quite the journey. Four of them require you to be dead. 
If that's not a fresh idea, I don't know what is. Number 9 is new heritage armor for gnomes and tauren. I was flabbergasted when I found out that gnomes were happening before races other people actually play, like orcs and humans. To be clear, I am not complaining. So the tauren stuff is amazing, and the gnome set is really neat too. I definitely love the forehead goggles. The rules for main race heritage armor are not as strict as they are for allied races. Any gnome or tauren that is both level 120 and then exalted with either gnomergon or thunderbluff can do the questline to unlock the mog. You could be race changed or level boosted and that's fine. Number 8 is the new Mechagon Outdoor Zone, not to be confused with the Mechagon Dungeon which is found out in the zone. This ranks higher than Najatar for me just because there's so much to do. There's basically a free patch specific profession with junkyard tinkering. You'll find tinker mats everywhere as you do things on Mechagon and be able to craft mounts, pets, toys, rep items, bombs. So that's fun. Horde and Alliance share a faction with the Rustbolt Resistance out here, and we're also going to be sharing a lot of space because it's not a very big island, so I expect war mode to be popping. There will be random NPC visitors to the island offering different quests to do, it's a whole adventure. I love that it is such a tone change from Najatar. They could have split them onto different patches, but no, 8-2 is going to be loaded. Number 7 is Mount Equipment. You get basically a gem slot in your mount journal and you get to pop a thing in there that makes all of your mounts better. If you had a water strider, you'll automatically get the water shoes equipment mailed to you and every one of your alts. If you hate the system because it's taking water walking off of your strider, you can just open your mail, pop those shoes on, and then your strider along with every other mount you have can water walk. For death knights, shamans, and folks who just like to swim, there are other options that let you parachute when you dismount in the air, save you from being dazed on your mount, or just plain go 20% faster. These are BOA and usable from level 20, so alts can use these to help level. It's a relatively small part of the patch, but I love stuff like this because it'll continue to impact the game beyond the patch. Like, it's a new permanent system. It's not just BFA mount equipment, it's forever mount equipment. They don't do that every day. Number 6 is the new pet battle dungeon, this time out in Stratholm. The mystery of the shadowy figure continues, and it's a new challenge to pit your critters against. More importantly, it means a new teleport to the tippy top of the Eastern Kingdoms for anyone who beats the challenge run. As an alliance player, getting out there is not fun, so I can't wait to get a free port from Manipoof. Also, we got like 20 new pet battle world quests. Of all of the new pets to collect in 8.2, I'm actually not seeing any new pets for polished pet charms yet, so if that holds true, all of these new world quests should really help you catch up. Number 5 is the new leg of the war campaign and the heart of Azeroth story, which is ramping up. There will be voice acting, lots of cutscenes, twists, turns, and probably something you don't agree with. It's just statistically likely. I can't wait to make like a whole day of it and turn off Discord, put my phone in a shoe, close my door most of the way because I have a cat, and then like play the new campaign like it's a movie. Nothing shall spoil it. Number 4 is new mounts. There's a good handful of like 30-ish new mounts to collect. Mechagon and Najatar offer a whole rodeo of collectible steeds, from mecha crawlers and hovercrafts to sea rays and tide stallions. I am especially looking forward to the Sea Ray mounts, I really hope that they fly like the Argus Fel Rays do, and also the Sideways Crab. It just makes so much more sense. I was googling for this video trying to figure out if maybe sometimes crabs do walk forward, and the autocomplete was asking if crabs walk forward when they're drunk, and all that led me to was Yahoo answer where some guy was just like, no, so uh, yeah, Sideways Crab mount. Number 3, the Mechagon Mega Dungeon, or more officially, Operation Mechagon. It's an 8-boss mythic dungeon, kinda like Legion's Karazhan, and at launch it'll be available on mythic difficulty only. 
In a later patch, they'll split it in half for the sake of Heroic and Mythic Plus, but for now, Mythic only. You'll need a pre-made group, and ideally, you'll want one that you can put up with for at least a solid hour. This is a feature-length experience, and it's exceptional. It feels like progressing through a raid for five people. The fights are fun, the areas are cool, the trash is dangerous, and there are mounts to collect. There's also some interesting gear out of here, such as the two-part ring sets. Collect them and then mix and match for the combo that'll suit the way you play. Number 2, the Eternal Palace Raid. Encounter design is just killing it in this patch, which is why the instances are so high up on the list. I have so far seen 7 of the 8 bosses in raid testing and I am just in love. The new raid's full of unique fights that really deliver on the under the sea theme right up to the fully underwater fish boss. Okay, I don't think that one's going to go down as a crowd favorite, but I'm glad they're not afraid to try something dumb, and the rest of the raid's awesome. The world first race for Ashara is going to be really fun to watch, and I can't wait to progress through the palace with my own guild. Also, there are some tasty Shadow Priest fights in here. And finally, number one coolest thing coming in patch 8.2, according to me anyways, is Pathfinder Part 2 and flying in BFA. It's finally here. For me, this is going to breathe life into not just the new stuff, but all of the earlier areas of BFA. Flight's going to be great for gathering, it's going to be amazing for getting to pet battle world quests, especially as some of them are just like halfway up a cliff. I'm going to level new alts to 120, I'm going to get on my albatross and just fly in circles around Boralus, it's going to be great. I'm on board with the do things on the ground first approach that they've been taking, but I do wish that they would add full Pathfinder a little earlier in the expansion cycle. However, I am really relieved that flying will work in both Najatar and Mechagon, and it's not going to take too long to unlock. If you already have your BFA Pathfinder Part 1, all you'll need is Revered with two new reputations, not even Exalted. You do also need to fully explore both new zones, but that's pretty quick. If you're not sure whether or not you finished Pathfinder Part 1, now is a good time to check. Wowhead has a tool at wowhead.com attunement where you can look up your character and see what you still need. So, those are the things that I think are coolest in 8.2, but there is even more. For honorable mentions, there is a new arena map, two new island maps, Ashran is an epic battleground, new seasons of arena, and Mythic Plus. There will be new things to gather, craft, and sell, there's new appearance sets to farm and collect and wear. On the whole, I can't wait for the patch, there's going to be so many great things to do. If you've been taking a break and you're on the fence about coming back, 8.2 is a great time to give it another try. So that's it! Thank you for watching, share what you're looking forward to most in 8.2 in the comments, and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye! I am actually torn between what to look forward to the most, whether it's going to be WoW Classic, or whether it's going to be 8.2 because I definitely like playing classic or I like the classic gameplay way better than the current BFA retail whatever you want to call it playstyle. I haven't played the story in well basically since Kata came out if you don't count the five, six hours that I played on the crash test, stress test, whatever server that I had access to while that lasted. I still do not have access to the regular close beta. So I'm wondering now, with all the new lore in 8.2, because there is no new lore in Classic, there will not be, obviously, but all the new lore 
that we are going to get with Najatar and all the Naga slash Night Elf slash High Elf lore that we are going to see and the Mechagon gnome lore. I'm really torn to what to expect most, but I think that given the progression of the characters that we have come to love over the years that we've played, I think that the development of the characters, you might call it the fate of some of them, because we never know what happens to them, is something that is overall more interesting than a gameplay change, so to speak, with a game, in this case classic, that is fixed, where we know what's going on regardless of how long we play, because it is a non-developing version. There will be no add-ons, as far as I know, to Classic, because Classic is just what it is. It is vanilla WoW. So for law reasons, I think I like BFA, but for gameplay, like I mentioned before, I like Classic. And this is one of the reasons why I bring you content for both of the game versions at the moment. Normally I would wait for 8.2 stuff and put it all into one big pile episode just before 8.2 launches. And the same thing with Classic. I would wait with all the things that are relevant to put them into one big episode on what? August 26th, 27th, whenever that launches, for whenever your time zone is relevant. But there is way too much, and you we have and we have to deal with two games now. So I'm not sure what to do yet. I just wanted to let you people know that why I put stuff out there from both games and why it sometimes can seem a little early to bring you information on a game that isn't out yet or a game version that isn't out yet. Anyway, so far we have listened to Hero Maradex's top 10 weirdest talents from Vanilla Wow talent trees, Ember Assaulte with her For the Horde, Hazelnutty Games with 15 cool things in patch 8.2, and Charms Tales of the Loa Kragwa. And we're going to continue with Noble 87's The Story of Felwood, classic to present. I just wanted to mention quickly that the classic version of Felwood has a very special meaning to me because as a warlock player, and he is mentioning this briefly in his segment, as a warlock player I had to go there to get my Infernal from the little imp, Impsy. I really always remember that quest chain very fondly because it was part of this classic class quest experience that we don't have much left of. A little renaissance in Legion, well, a little, quite a bit of a renaissance in Legion, but that seemed to me to be a 
little flare-up, and now it's died down again. There is hardly anything left from that, and I'm really feeling that it's quite sad. But again, that's just me. So here is Noble 87. Hello everyone, and welcome to the corrupted lands of Felwood. Once part of Ashenville, this area was transformed when Archimonde and the Burning Legion, they came to take another bite out of Azeroth during Warcraft 3. In that game, we saw Kel'Fuzad take the Book of Medivh out of Dalaran, since that book contained the incantations that he needed to summon Archimonde, while Tychondrius took another prize out of the city, the Skull of Gul'dan. This orc warlock had joined the Horde during their first invasion of Azeroth, but eventually set his eyes on power hidden away within the tomb of Sagaris. His lust and greed would soon become his demise, to which his skull, it did quite a bit of traveling. For example, Deathwing held it for a bit, Ketgar used it to shut down the Dark Portal, until it ended up here in the Vault of Dalaran and now at the hands of Tychondrius. On Archimonde's orders, the Pitlord Manoroth, together with Tychondrius, they traveled to Kalimdor to weaken his defenses in preparation for the demon's invasion. Archimonde clearly remembers when the Legion tried to claim Azeroth before. The War of the Ancients, they called it, over 10,000 years ago. A war that was won by the Night Elves by reversing the portal that was created, sending the Legion back to where they came from. This did destroy their source of power, the Well of Eternity, but in the Stormrage, he made a new one. Something that the other Night Elves could not exactly appreciate. They just fought a war because of the original well. So Illidan, because of this and amongst other things, he was labeled betrayer and imprisoned for his crimes. Conquering that second well and wiping out the opposition. That is what Archimond wants to do first. Now Kalimdor, it teemed with creatures who were hostile to the Legion. The demons considered most of them harmless, little more than minor annoyances. But Cenarius and the other wild gods, they were different. During that war of the ancients, they had fiercely resisted the legion. If they now wanted any hopes of reaching the second well of eternity, they would have to get through Cenarius and his woodland allies first. To blunt the might of the wild, Manorov and Tychondrius, they had brought the Skull of Gul'dan to Kalimdor. The artifacts it had changed since falling into the hands of the Legion, the demons had infused it with even more fell magic, making it far more powerful than it had been before. They could draw those energies, the poison Ashenvale's woodlands, and weaken Cenarius. The process, it would be slow, but it would definitely be effective. On top of that, Manorov also set a little trap for the orcs on the planets. They had been corrupted with his blood before, and now, as Kromash Hellscream led his forces into a war with none other than Scenarius, they would drink again. This did indeed give them the power to strike down Scenarius. It earned them a great victory, but it also firmly placed them under Manorov's control once again. So despite Scenarius falling to the orcs, the Skull of Godan, it was still busy corrupting the land. Now the Night Elves, they were well aware that Archimond had returned, just as Illidan had predicted. So it was that the leader Tron the Whisperwind, despite the objections of her beloved Malfurion Stormrage, she decided to free the Betrayer and recruit his aid against the Legion. Tyrande, it is your voice. After all these ages spent in darkness, your voice is like the pure light of the moon upon my mind. Only for her was he willing to help their people. Freedom was his once more, and as he stormed Hyjal's war-torn forest, he had no specific destination in mind, but he did have a purpose. He was going to bring the Legion to his knees, but to do that, he was going to need even greater knowledge and power. Illidan sends both, emanating from northern Ashenville, where immense fell energies ripped out from the wilds. He followed the magics to their source, and he soon found himself in what we now call Felwood, 
The first creature to bar his way was not a demon. It was a human who reeked of death. I am free after 10,000 years. Yet still my own brother thinks I am a villain. I'll show him my true power. I'll show him that the demons have no hold over me. Are you certain of that, Demon Hunter? Are you certain your will is your own? You reek of death, human. You regret approaching me. Come then. You'll find that we're evenly matched. Despite previously helping with summoning Archimon into the world, Arthas and his master the Lich King, they held no love for the Burning Legion. He was seeking a way of overthrowing their control without drawing their attention, and he found the perfect pawn in Illidan. The dark energies of the skull were spreading further every day, slowly creeping up Hyjal's slopes. If Arthas could strike down Tychondrius and destroy the Skullicool then, it would then stop the spread of fell magic and deal a significant blow to the Legion's war efforts. Arthas sensed Illidan's insatiable yearning for power. It would be an easy thing to use the Night Elf's ambitions as a weapon. We could go on fighting like this forever. What is it you truly want? The Dreadlord who commands this undead army is called Tychondrius. He controls a powerful warlock artifact called the Skull of Gul'dan. It is responsible for corrupting these forests. And you wish for me to steal it? Why? Let's just say that I have no love for Tychondrius. And the lord I serve would benefit from the Legion's downfall. Illidan was deeply suspicious of Arthas, but he had already sensed the great power emanating from within Felwood. It was simply too enticing to ignore, so Illidan went in search of it and he left Arthas behind. This would not be the last time that these two would meet. Now a trail of fallen demons, it stretched behind Illidan by the time that he found the Skull of Gul'dan. He was pleased to discover that the artifact was filled with not only energy, but also knowledge. The skull contained the memories of the Orc Warlock. Rather than simply draw power from the relic, Illidan consumed his energies entirely. Now, at least the demons will no longer corrupt the forests. But if I destroy the skull and claim its powers as my own, I will become stronger than any of Archimonde's lieutenants. Yes, the power should be mine. <laughs> now I am complete. Bell magic surged through his flesh and blood. Massive horns sprouted from his skull, while leathery wings unfurled from his back. Illidan transformed from a night elf into a demon, very similar to how his brother's druidic journey that transformed him from a night elf into a much more animalistic creature. As power flooded into Illidan, so did Gul'dan's memories. He learned of the creature's homeworld of Draenor, Outland as we would now call it, and of the mysteries and ancient artifacts locked within the tomb of Sargeras. Imbued with this new power, Illidan hunted down Tychondrius. What? Who are you? Let's see how confident you are against one of your own kind, Dreadlord. Foul demon! What have you done with my brother? It is I, Purim. This is what I've become. No! Illidan, how could you? The leader of the undead has been destroyed, and the forests will heal in time. At the cost of your soul? You are no brother of mine. 
be gone from this place, and never set foot in our lands again. So be it, brother. Despite the fact that he had helped the Nidos war efforts, despite doing the very thing that she had released him for, Illidan now faced the scorn from his brother and even from Tyrande. In their mind, he had gone too far in consuming the Skullicle Dan. He had become a demon, one of the very creatures that the Night Elves were struggling to defeat. Illidan obeyed his banishment, but only because he knew that staying in this area, it was simply meaningless. If the Night Elves thwarted the Legion invasion, it would simply not matter. A single defeat would not stop the Legion from just coming back again. Illidan had his own war to fight, the only war that mattered. Do you see now? For doing what was needed to drive the demons from these lands, my master was banished. Verona Sindweller tells us, He's a demon hunter in the area that we're actually asked to kill, since he's been killing druids of the Emerald Circle. But instead, he opens our eyes to the truth. The Emerald Circle, that's a branch of the Cenarian Circle, an order of mostly druids that are working very hard on cleansing the land of Felwood. We helped them out a lot with that task, yet the druids that Veronis has been killing at Jadefire Run, they're not druids at all. They're actually demons in disguise, going as high up as the leader of the circle, Archdruid Navarax himself. Veronis wants to take him out, but he can't get to him. The other members, they would unknowingly defend the demon with their lives, but we have their trust. We reveal Navarax to be the Seder Zaravan, a demon that we put down. The Order is shocked to the core by this revelation. We'll investigate the druids of Jadefire Run and make sure that the higher-ups know that Veronis should be left alone. So that is how the land of Felward came to be as we know it as today. A land named after the very thing that corrupted it. While the circle might have been infiltrated, that doesn't mean that they're not trying to do what is best for the land. Even back in Classic, most of the quests that we did here, that had to do with trying to heal nature or kick out the remaining forces left behind by the Legion. Forces like the satyrs, minions of the Burning Legion, whose origins go all the way back to the War of the Ancients. When Queen Azara, her advisor Xavius and the Highborn made contact with Sargeras and the Legion, they worked very hard on bringing the Dark Titan into the world. In turn, the Resistance, they did their very best to stop this from happening. Malfurion even destroyed the first portal they created, as well as taking out Xavius. But Sargeras wasn't quite done yet with the Elf. He took those parts that used to please him, reshaped the body, and he brought him back to Azeroth as the first of the Seder. Xavius then went on corrupting more of his kind to be like him, and while Xavius would eventually be turned into a tree by Malfurion, his corrupted kin is still out there. We killed them at Jade Fire Glen, but getting to the corrupted Moonwell is a little bit more trickier, as they have a barrier of demonic fire protecting it. We're going to need the Claw of Tychondrius to get in, information that we learned from an imp. This imp might sound familiar to you if you played a warlock during Classic. This imp is Impsy. More on him later, but with the unwilling aid of the imp, we learn how to obtain the claw, dispel the barrier and take out one of the leaders, Zavatras. While we were busy doing that, Impsy talks a little bit more, and specifically about what imps fear most. Arcanus Delaris then uses that information to conjure up a prism, which will project an image of what was described, terrifying the Jadefire imps, who will reward it with a rainbow-generated toy. Beautiful rainbows brightening up the world, while the claw is given to people responsible enough to contain such things, assuming that it can't be destroyed. At the ruins of Constellus, we murder some of the Seder while running into members of the Shadow Council. The Shadow Council used to be Gul'dan's special secret club, but with the Orc death, the Council has now accepted members from all kinds of races and are seemingly doing the bidding of the Burning Legion. Foul warlocks behind nearly every attempt to bring demons into Azeroth. 
A Jadenar named in worship of Kiel Jaden himself, a former Barrow Den has been taken over, turned into the Shadow Council's own stronghold on Azeroth. Corruption that must be removed. Their satyrs are working directly with the Shadow Council, an answer to the ancient and powerful Prince of Alice. Some say that he's the son of Xavius, the very first satyr, but I don't actually recall any mention of Xavius having a child. Who knows how those rumors start, but we kill him of course, then take on the succubi Mora and Salia, fighting our way to the Orc Feldan. Not the most original name you could think of, more demon than Orc. With Feldan's death, there's only one left to kill, the Dreadlord, Lord Bane Hollow, the one that the Shadow Council serves. The cleansing of Shadow, it's going to take more time and effort, but with our defeat of the Shadow Council, at least it's going to be possible at all. In time, it may even be used as the Barrow Den that it once was. At Whispering Grove, they're well aware they're trying to bring nature back to a land that's so corrupted by Fell that that is no easy task, but they're trying all the same. Some progress is even being made, as we discovered from the newly sprouting plants and the diminishing Fell energies in the entropic horrors at Shatterscar Vale. The Vale is the area where the first demons set foot in this land, infernals that crash down from the sky, which create these massive craters in the earth. The most fearsome demon in the Vale, that would have to be Crocius. Though many have hunted him over the years, destruction has only made him stronger. Time after time, warlocks came to these forests and reanimated Crocius. That was because in Classic, in order to learn how to summon an Infernal, warlocks had to follow this questline that took them into Felwood. Together with Impsy, the same imp that we interrogated, they got the materials necessary to reanimate Crocius. They then slew the demon and brought back its Infernal core. Part of the Warlock Mount quest also played out here, and then there was another. One of the quests that stuck in my mind as being one of the best quests that I've ever played through, that would be the Hunter Epic Bow Quests. Within Ragnaros' fiery lair of Molten Core, hunters found an ancient petrified leaf. The epidermis of the leaf glows a bright green. The surface is extremely raucous, exposing several veins and wrinkles. If you had to take a guess, you would say that this leaf came from something ancient and powerful, Maybe you should find the original owner of this leaf. And that owner is right here in Felwood, Vartrus the Ancient. Together with Hastad and Stoma, these ancients did not have the greatest time the Legion came and corrupted their lands. They're not too happy with the Legion and decide to recruit hunters to enact some vengeance for them, take out four of the mightiest agents of the Legion still hiding on the world, and as a reward, you will get Rock de Lar, a longbow of the ancient keepers, as well as the staff and the quiver once the entire questline was done. The ancient protectors of Iron Tree Woods, they're dead for years now, their bodies a grim symbol of the damage to these lands. Every season though, the elves still take the water from the Moonwell and pour it on the ground before them, hoping that it will nurture new life. We get to follow their tradition, and when you know it, a little sprout pops up right before our eyes. Nature still has a chance to grow. We take it to some rich soil, feed it some bugs, let it dance in the sunbeams and absorb the spirits of other corrupted stompers. Bigger and bigger it becomes, with room for each friend. Others of its kind have tried so many times to grow in this forest, with little success. The Wither Protector that lurks in the north, it's the only ancient that has grown to maturity since the ruining of the forest, but his body is sick and its mind is mad. We'll save him as well by putting him out of his misery and adding its spirit to our sprouts. In the shadow of the ancients, it takes root to grow further. Someday it will spread its branches across a renewed forest full of life and hope. Maybe one day we'll actually see each other again. 
Until the day comes, we'll have to focus on the story right now. Of course, there's also going to be some Alliance and Horde-specific questing. Back in Classic, the Horde had their own outpost called Blood Venom Post, where they used to help Weena Hazard with finding some kind of advantage against the Alliance. Her newest interest was a moonwell at the ruins of Constellus, tended by the Jadefire Satyrs. Its corrupted waters could be used to our advantage. With just a small amount of it, her kitten had doubled in size and seems to be stronger. Her experiments pleased it at first, but they got out of control real quick. These days, the area is overrun with awful slime thingies. Only Altsoba Rage Totem was able to make it out alive. The poor Torrin is very ill, but thankfully, the Dryad Kelnir is taking real good care of him. We help out by gathering some Emerald Shimmer Caps so that he can barf out the corruption, and then we clean up the mess at the camp. Winna is pretty far gone, but what's left of her is continuously making new slime. We have to stop the production, we have to reach her somehow. Perhaps the kitten that she used to use for the quest, perhaps that's going to be enough to get through to her. The very same kitten that she had fed corrupted slime water, it now prowls the forest, large and dangerous. We slay it, a kindness really, and its ear tag, it reminds Willa of what she has done, just long enough for us to slay her. Then further to the north, we discover that the Worgen and the Goblins, they're duking it out. Some of these Worgens have lived in the land since the Scythe of Alun first passed through it. Meaning that they are the original Worgen, Night Elves taking the pack form too far and losing themselves to the beasts. Most of them have suffered through the fall of Gilneas, so the playable human kind of organ, but all of them have gathered here to learn the ways of nature and uphold its balance. In this cursed land, their cursed people have found a new way of life. Now they have tried everything in their power to warn the goblins to leave the Iron Tree clearing before they resorted to violence. As the goblins turned a blind ear to them, they struck and now rather than spare the forest, the goblins prefer to lay down their lives for greed. They will soon know the full extent of their fury as heroes slay their Iron Tree choppers and stop the goblins from stealing the wisps. In turn, the goblins are increasing their production as much as they can. If they don't, the horde might lose the war, and if the horde loses the war, they're out on their butts at best and dead at worst. Heroes help the goblins by oiling up the shredders, slaying the hidden worgen and stealing some of the wisps. While the alliance sabotages their main pump, which causes pipes to break all over the camp, the goblins are in a panic. The Horde tries to clean up the mess as best as they can, but with the goblins scattered around and the equipment destroyed, they'll either get the message and leave the area, or they're going to be easy picking for the Worgen if they choose to stay. The Worgen believe that they have won here, so they ask the Alliance heroes to check in with the local Furbalk. Well, the Horde, they do the same. While they deal with the fallout of all the ridiculous nonsense this has went on in their camp, they need someone to give the Furbalk the idea that the Horde isn't all bad. Now the origin of the Furbalk, that goes back to a fierce race of bearmen called the Yalgar, as described in the Chronicles. While Bram Bronzebeard, he suggests that they're actually descendants from the wild god called Ursuk. Both might actually be true. These Yalgar might have come from Ursuk, then pushed into Kalandor's lush central forest by King Yimron and his forces, to then become the Furbalk as we know them today. They were also a fierce ally during the War of the Ancients, not always hostile to outsiders, but over time, corruption from different sources, it pushed them into outright hostility or wariness of outsiders. Right here in Felwood, the fell corruption has hit the Furbalk's heart, the Timbermaw being the last known tribe of uncorrupted Furbalk within the area. You used to spend quite a bit of time proving yourself to them, grinding reputation by either killing the corrupted Furbalk or turning in spirit beads and deadwood headdress feathers. The rewards were definitely worth it though. Not only did it mean safe passage into Winterspring, some of the patterns were simply amazing to have. These days, proving yourself is still part of the journey, but it has become quite a bit easier. 
This starts as soon as we enter the zone. Rumbo, great god of the Timbermall tribe. It speaks to us through his totem. We get the honor of being its champion by slaying the corrupted Deadwood for a bulk, get him some honey and do a little dance. Yeah, oddly enough, this great god wants to see us dance. Turns out it was just two furball cups hiding in the totem, Drizzle and Furly playing a little prank. Further up north, we run into the cups again. Drizzle was dumb enough to go into Felpaw Village himself to steal some honey. It was a dumb idea and he got caught in need of a rescue. While there, we also slay the corrupted Furbog at Felpaw Village. And while we're at it, we might as well prevent some bloodshed in the future by stealing away their weapons. It's going to take some time before the Timbermoth Furbog trusts us completely. But this is definitely a good start. Just as long as we don't go around murdering all the Furbog that we see, we should be able to find some common ground. And that is the story of Felwood, once part of Ashenvale, then corrupted by Fel, now dealing with the aftermath of the Legion invasion. By all means, let me know which zone you'd like me to cover next in the comments down below. And as always, thank you very much for watching everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos, leave a like if you enjoyed this one, and until next time guys, see ya! All the creatures, great and small, hmm. His protection will encompass all mm. If sacrifice be a whim mm. Best look to yourself, not one of them For those that seek to care for others Find your kin, sisters and brothers hmm. If you be the one you love the most hmm. To him you surely should not boast With each word he puts much weight Well Hey, it's all, and this is part one of my guide that's going to take you through patch 8.2, The Rise of Ashara. By the end of this series, you're going to be more than prepared to take on Queen Ashara and everything else that this patch has to throw at you. Here's the slight problem, though. There's so much to cover in the patch that I have to split it into separate guides. So be sure to subscribe to the channel so you know when each part is released. And of course, please show some support by sharing these guides with others. 
I'm going to be covering as much as I can, given the information that we have, but keep in mind that we're still getting more PTR builds and things could change over time. So please check the description or the comments if there are any significant updates that you should know. And finally, uh, just kidding. Let's just get right into it and take you through part one of the Rise of Ashara guide, what to do before the patch. 8.2 is going to give players a lot of long-term goals to hit. Some of you may want to hit the ground running, while others just don't want to fall too far behind. The last thing that you want to do is suddenly run into a situation where you have to play catch-up. So let's take care of what's within our power now and get you up to speed. Complete the Battle for Azeroth Pathfinder Part 1 on your main character. That's going to mean exploring all the zones, getting to revered with the 8.0 factions, completing 100 world quests, and finishing all the major zone storylines along with the war campaign. If you want to fly, and thus get through 8.2 and 8 point whatever content faster, you're going to want to get this achievement out of the way, because your daily routine after the patch, it's not going to have you spending all that much time in these 6 zones that you've been goofing around in up till now. You're going to be farming rep really hard, but we're going to cover that in a future video. Next, how's your Heart of Azeroth doing? You're going to want it to be as close to 50 as you can get it before the patch drops. If it's already at 50, well, well, that's what you get for farming. No, no, I'm just kidding. You just have a little bit less to do. The reason you want it to be at max level, at least for your main, is because more levels are going to unlock for your Heart of Azeroth when the patch comes out. Later on, getting to level 55 and then 65 is going to unlock features that I'm going to get into much, much later. I want to at least reassure you that even if you're not that close to 50 right now, you don't have to worry about missing out on really cool stuff. But whether you're 50 or not, if you've already hit Exalted with all 6 reputations, you might want to hold on to as much rep and paragon boxes for some solid starting artifact power. So here's what I mean. For each of the reputations, you can have one paragon box on hand and 19,999 out of 10,000 reputation. So the idea here is that on day 1, you open up a box, then you do a turn in for another box, and then you earn one more rep point for a third box. If you're able to do this with all six reps, that's going to equate to 45,000 artifact power. But you also might want to make sure that you don't open these boxes until at least one more artifact knowledge level kicks in, so you get the most bang for your buck. So depending on when Blizzard decides to do it, you might not want to open up all these boxes day one of the patch. Just keep an eye out or otherwise come back here and I should have an update in the description or in the comments. Ultimately, this isn't going to take you light years ahead of the competition, but it is a good start, especially if your heart is already maxed out. If you're a rep farming fiend though, you might want to do this for your alts, and then just wait until you're ready to really start working on said alts, because then you'll have a couple of weeks of artifact knowledge to give you that, well, even more of an additional boost. Speaking of alts, you might want to get your alts to a reasonable item level. By reasonable, I'm thinking that if you can at least get them to the Darkshore Warfront and get them a mostly complete set, then they're going to be decently ready enough to handle Nazjatar. At least at the moment, on the PTR there's a way that you can funnel account-bound upgrade tokens to help your main or your alts get item level 430 gear fairly quickly. There's a chance that this doesn't end up turning out to be as lucrative as it is on the PTR, so I hope to have more for you when I get to later parts of the guide, but if this stays in place, the more alts that you have to help funnel upgrade tokens, the better. 
On a similar vein, you'll want to make sure that you have as much stuff to turn in or open on week one of the patch. So this is also going to include your weekly PvP and your Mythic Plus chest to open, as well as a treasure map mission that's ready to go. Completed missions for Azerite or Rep wouldn't hurt either. So basically I'm saying pile up as much of these turn-ins before the patch. If you're really serious about Rep, you're going to be doing a fair share of pet battles over on Nazjatar and Mechagon. Now I'm pretty much a dimwit when it comes to pet battles, so I'm going to provide links below to a few Wowhead comments that detail just how they completed the upcoming pet battle dailies. Not only do they give rep, but the first time you complete them, you'll receive a follow-up quest item that you turn in for an additional 250 rep each, which will save you hours of farming. So check out the description above for the Wowhead links. Right now I have four. There might be more as time goes on. All right, for you profession lovers out there, you'll want to max out your profession levels. 8.2 is adding new recipes, and I'm not just talking about the usual upgrades to those starter max level gear and the fun stuff like Blingtron. I mean, don't get me wrong, those things are really cool, but I'm talking about new consumables like food, flasks, and potions, and these have very noticeable upgrades. In light of this, you'll also want to consider slowing down production of your current consumables so you can stockpile resources for later, because the new recipes are going to use a mix of both old and new materials. Expulsum is still going to be a thing, so keep that stuff coming through either regular scrapping or world quests when they offer it. As for you gatherers, uh, you're going to make a lot of money, so, <laughs> so hang out in the zones a lot and just get yourselves ready. You also want to get your followers up to speed. If you haven't noticed by now, throwing a resource tracker for goods like fish or herbs is the way to make some pretty easy gold in BFA. If not for the instant gratification, it's the gold that you make by selling said goods or by saving gold because you're using them for your profession. Sometime in 8.2, probably very early on, you're going to get a quest that will unlock a sixth follower to help you make that much more gold. So get ready to put them to work, and maybe have some follower equipment ready when they level up a little bit for some extra credit. 8.2 is going to bring a host of dailies for you to enjoy, including some puzzle-based ones. One in particular is lifted from the Blingtron Engineering toy from Legion, which presents you with a bunch of shapes to untangle. If you don't have the toy, it's not all that hard to make or to just buy, but it might be worth giving this a little bit of practice before you get to the real thing. That's it for the guide, so stay tuned for upcoming sections as I cover the goals that you should be striving for in the earlier days of the patch. Don't forget to like the video if it was useful and to stick around for more of this and all things Warcraft. I'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay happy, and stay breezy. Thank you for listening to episode 49 of Corpse Run Video. At the end, as always, I would like to thank the contributors for this episode. Hero Maradex, Amber Assaulty, Hazelnut Games, Charm, Novel 87, So So Breezy, and Doran's Movies. Recently I had an interview with the voice of our dark lady, Patty Madsen. You can expect that interview to be released on episode 100-50. I will rebrand the numbers because I want to incorporate the mini-episodes into the overall count of the podcasts and what better time to do it than when both of these counts have reached 50 upcoming is going to be the regular episode number 50 
and we have done 50 mini casts. So going forward, those two counts will be combined into one, which means that episode 50 will be episode 100, just so you know why it happened, that jump. With that said, thank you very much for listening, and until next time in episode 100. Bye, everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Corpse Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at mail at gmail.com or on Twitter at CorpsRunRadio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash CorpsRunRadio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Hello guys, this is Doron's Movies and today I will be giving you top 10 most horrific old god creations in World of Warcraft covering all sorts of old god monstrosities and minions that we have seen throughout history. So without further ado, let's get into the lore. Number 10. Faceless Ones Known as the Enraki, they are one of the most common old god minions, a monstrous race that arose from the organic matter that seeped through the old god's forums before the titans even arrived. They were a pillar to the Black Empire and were usually taskmasters that employed the Akir to build the shrines and temples of the massive empire. When the Titan Forged conquered Azeroth, most of them were imprisoned alongside their masters. However, thousands of years later, they would start to re-emerge. First when the Nerubians started to dig too deep, and now with recent old god influences. We have seen them anywhere from Northrend to Kul Tiras, Zandalar and the Emerald Nightmare. The Faceless Ones are powerful creatures with no recognizable faces and usually have one arm larger than the other, appearing misshapen to mortals. They speak the language of the old gods Shatyar that no other Ezrotian race can understand and the communication is usually translated through telephatic whispers. Scary, versatile beings that have only one goal, to serve their masters. Number 9. Merciless Ones Commonly known as zoatroids, they are creepy aquatic creatures primarily found underwater. They are octopus-like and have only one eye. The main power of the merciless ones is their parasitic nature. They are capable of attaching themselves to the heads of sapient beings and enslaving them, completely controlling their minds and their thoughts. Often referred to as demon squids, although having no real connection with demons, it's just that they are so horrific. We've seen them on the Broken Isles, Kultiras, Vashir and other zones. Not the most powerful, but horrifying and creepy creatures. Number 8. Nerubians 
After the war with the trolls, the Akira split. Nerubians were a portion of the old god servants that ventured north, eventually settling in Northrend. There they overthrew the Tolver society and became really the most influential force on the continent. They were fabled for their architecture, intelligence, and had developed a sophisticated and highly risen society. Thousands of years later, the Lich King would seek to extend his influence over Northrend, and these old god creations stood in his way. A massive war began known as the War of the Spider, and due to the resistance to the plague, it was a long war, won only by attrition. After the defeat of the Lich King, a small portion of it began to repopulate, but the Nerubians would never reach their former glory. As a part of the Scourge, they were one of the most useful members, and much of their architecture was adopted by the Scourge. Nerubians are brilliant builders, spellcasters, as well as warriors. Number 7. Hydras While not proven to have been created by the old gods directly, we do know for a fact that some of them serve the old gods and are their favorite pets. Their appearance is that of old god creations, but it is entirely possible that they were just native beasts that were favored by the old gods or were possibly worked by them. Nonetheless, they are very scary creatures, usually intelligent and possessing multiple hands. They are very difficult to kill as their wounds heal very quickly and when fatally wounded, they can split into multiple smaller hydras. They can be small monsters or massive monstrosities and are known to be ruthless. Each of their heads appears to display a level of independent behavior. Akumai of Black Fathom Deeps was known to possess old god power and was worshipped with the Twilight's Hammer as a divine sign. Number 6. Kiraji the Kiraji are part of the Akir, the group that ventured south after the split. Their main concentration was around Silithus, but most importantly around the prison of Katun, their master. They would spend thousands of years building an army capable of reforming the Black Empire and reawakening the Old God. The most notable encounter was the War of the Shifting Sands some thousand years ago, which was a massive battle between the Kiraji and the Night Elves and the Dragons. The Druids had awoken them as they attempted to transform Silithus, starting the war that ended with heavy casualties on both sides and ultimately the Kiraji threat being stopped behind a wall. However, almost a millennia later, this wall would break as the gates of Ankiraj were shattered. The might of Kalimdor fought a bloody battle but managed to contain the threat. While they have been nearly but destroyed, they still remain out there. Kiraji can be seen in various forms from gladiators to prophets and emperors, wielding heavy weapons, flying or swarming their enemies with bugs. Number 5. Naga the most notable of the old god creations. These serpentine beings were once highborn, masters of sorcery and followers of Queen Ashara. When the planet was sundered, they together with the ruler fell into the ocean and as a last resort, Ashara accepted Nezot's offer to be transformed into the Naga. Interestingly enough, unlike most creations, Ashara became a queen and not just a minion of the old gods and since then they have been building a civilization on the ocean floor. 
Very little was known of them for thousands of years, but within the last 20, we have seen them constantly through smaller and bigger insurgencies as well as campaigns. Currently, they are participating in the battle for Azeroth, attacking the coastlines of Zandalar and Kul Tiras. Queen Ashara will be the final boss in 8.2 within Nazgatar, the capital city of the Naga, located in the middle of the Great Sea. Not much is known yet of the fate of the Naga, but we do know that they're one of the most numerous and most influential of the old god creations. Number 4. Mantid As the Nerubians went north and the Kiraji south, the Mantid would go even further south. There, they reached the lands of Pandaria, where they had established an empire of their own. The Mantid had worshipped Yasharaj since the days of old and had sworn to serve him again if he was ever to return. They mainly settled in the Dreadwastes and due to their ferocity, a wall had to be built, splitting Pandaria from them. They would swarm the wall in regular waves, however, in midst of Pandaria, it happened sooner due to the Shao fear. When Garrosh absorbed the heart of Yasharaj, they allied with the Warchief, but after the defeat, much of their empire was brought to ruin. However, today they have a new Grand Empress and their future is uncertain. The Mantid are very intelligent beings, capable of sophisticated architecture, weapon production as well as magic. Very loyal to their queen but ultimately loyal to the old gods. Number 3. Shah Although technically not created by the old gods themselves, they are of old god origin. When Yasharaj was ripped out of Azeroth by Amantul, the remains fell upon the land of Pandaria and from them, the mysterious entity known as the Shah would spawn. They would manifest themselves in relation to negative emotions, feeding upon them and growing stronger. Due to the Pandaren culture, peaceful nature and practice, they had kept them under control for thousands of years with minor outbreaks here and there. Once the forces of Azeroth reached Pandaria, all would change. Unwary mortals became possessed by the negative Shah energy as they had battled each other. Once Garrosh absorbed the essence of Yasharaj, the Shah would eventually start to fade from existence, but they still remain to this day. They are shadowy, spirit-like creatures that can grow stronger based on how negative the emotion is and the actual intensity and can also infest the land. While they were defeated, having creatures that spawn based on emotions that can't be really controlled is pretty scary. Number 2. Catraxi the Catrax are one of the strongest old god creations ever made. While they're considered to be faceless ones, they're significantly more powerful and resilient. These monstrous warbringers are generals of the old god forces and so far we have only seen or heard about 10 of them. Two of the most notable were Kirix and Zakaz, the ones that hunted the titanic watcher Tyr. They are extremely powerful, having killed a titanic watcher through a days long battle. Worst of all, after their death, they don't really die, but they slowly regain their energy and return to life. This already happened once when the trolls had awakened the Catrax, which started the massive troll Akir war. Recently, we have seen Metrax in Zandalar that destroyed the last of the three seals, freeing Gahun. Catraxi are believed by many to be the most powerful of the old god creations. And lastly, number 1. Forgotten 
ones. Massive, mysterious entities with very little backstory. The only confirmed encounter was in Warcraft 3 when Artis and Anubarek had healed one in Azul Neru. However, a few other creations are speculated to also be forgotten ones, such as the monstrosities in the Twilight Highlands in the Hour of Twilight. They are massive creatures and look a lot like how you'd expect an old god to appear in their released forms. They command the faceless ones and are able to summon tentacles and other creations. Very little is known about them, but many speculate that they're just a few steps below the old gods and are thought to be the most powerful minions. Many believe that Ilgenot was a forgotten one, although it was never confirmed. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.